This is episode 145 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. We are, as always, sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing. You know their great beers like the flagship Fantasy Factory IPA, Block Party, and others. The next time you're in Madison, stop by their brewery on Kinsman Boulevard on the east side to check it out. You can also get a discount on some Carbon 4 merch just by listening to this podcast. Go to Carbon4.com and use our promo code MKE Tailgate when you check out. That's Carbon 4 beer brilliance you can also help support our podcast network at patreon.com slash mke tailgate our ball and glove and above patrons get the minor league extra podcast with ryan top and brad ford you also get paul newman's reporting as eligible packers mini pods and paul says he will be recording a new reporting as eligible full pod this week so be sure to turn in for that uh, i'm james langer joined by the full gang today brad paul and ryan and we actually have some baseball stuff to talk about. We're we're done talking legalese. Players are reporting. Labor <laughs> is over. I'm retiring from that. So. Yeah. So, so we could stop starting every podcast with all question mark. <laughs> At least until the CBA expires. Right. I was going to say. Exactly. Well, we have a year break. <laughs> exactly. So summer camp opened for the Brewers on Fourth of July at Miller Park. Good news is no one tested positive for COVID nineteen on the intake testing for the Brewers, but there were some big names across the league that did test positive. Uh, as of now, it looks like Freddie Freeman from the Braves is probably the biggest name to test positive. So his status is up in the air as we're now about three weeks or so away from opening day. The Brewers say, though, that not everyone is available right now due to previous positive tests. You, you know, remember a couple of weeks ago, they said they had a small number of folks who were asymptomatic. They're not still not saying who that is, but whoever those players are won't be available right away. Uh, players have to test negative twice in a 24-hour period before they're eligible to play. And as of now, no Brewers have opted out of playing yet, although, again, we've got some big names across the league. I think David Price over the weekend said he wasn't going to be pitching for the Dodgers this year. So that's something else to keep in mind as we go forward here. League wide, it looks like partial results of the intake testing showed about 39 positives, about 3,200 tests. That's a 1.2% positive rate to compare. The NBA's initial testing was around 7%. There is an asterisk on the MLB testing because those numbers were reported before teams like the Brewers even had the results back yet. So I think you can pretty much just throw those out. With all of that going on, I guess we'll just start with, do you guys still have lingering concerns about all of this? Uh, Ryan, how about you? I mean, they're not lingering. They're they're right kind of up in front, flashing. Sure. You, bright warning red signs. Lights. Yeah, yeah i mean there's there's a number of things i don't understand the the comparison there between the mlb testing which i mean we have a sample of 3200 tests so 39 out of those i don't know how you end up with such a big disparity between the nba and the the mlb rates unless it's just that maybe there was different methodology used or something because when you think about it like mlb's 1.2% positive rate doesn't include anybody who tested positive previously and didn't show up for the intake process, right? So it's anybody who right. had already tested positive and was at home or whatever, they're not included in that that positive rate. But this also includes a lot of staffers. I mean, obviously, it's a lot of staffers and people associated with with the operation as opposed to the players themselves. I don't know. It's when I heard 1.2% initially, it was, you know, I was like, oh, that's pretty positive. Like, that's a very low rate. But then the more I think about it, 
I, I don't know still how to contextualize that and how to look you know, forward and say, what is this going to mean for their ability to play a season? How is this even going to work? It, it, there's still so many questions left outstanding. Well, like Freddie Freeman, I believe, tested negative when they did the intake test on Tuesday. Then he had symptoms and they're like, oh, no, that was a false negative. You're positive. So I wonder right. how much of that we're getting now. That's the thing that in terms of our optimistic feelings regarding COVID and the possibility that there will be a season. Once I saw that four significant Braves players, obviously, Freddie Freeman is a significant player in baseball. But then you have Will Smith, a big free agent signing, Tuki Toussaint and Pete Cosma. And all of a sudden you're looking at four players on a 30 man roster who have the disease. Freddie Friedman isn't asymptomatic. He's actually dealing with it. So even though they're like, oh, he just has a fever right now. We don't know if he'll be able to play again this season because of the long term ramifications of COVID. We know that that's a possibility that he might not be able to breathe well enough to actually deal with this. I think in ter- when I saw that news, it was I was already pessimistic about this actually going through. But now, like, it seems like four players getting it just like that the second they got together, it really filled me with pessimism. But I think that's part of where the, like, lower rate is going to correct to the mean of the average of 2.5% is we're going to realize, like, oh, like, a fair number of these tests were false negatives, Now we have teams that are reporting guys who initially tested negative and now the positives are showing up. Um, Obviously, NBA 7% is just insane, but they have a smaller number group to work from, too. Um, There's a lot of there's a lot of statistical reasons um, and selection bias reasons that these numbers probably exist the way they are. for baseball's perspective, if you're comparing it to what the national positive test rate is, baseball's testing everybody that comes in, and not everybody in the general population is tested. People are basically only tested if they either are symptomatic or if they actually seek out a test for some other reason, have some inclination that they may have been exposed. Um, that's going to lead to a higher percentage of positive test rate generally. In, in the case of the NBA, um, if I had to guess, it would be that when the NBA had their original scare back when Rudy Gobert happened, I'm, I'm guessing that they did test almost everybody. And so they have a good idea of who had it back then. If you eliminate a big chunk of the population that would test negative now by their nature, because if they had it back then, like I said, you can, you can possibly still get it again, but it's, you possibly can't. You basically take out a bunch of people who can't test positive from your pool. You're going to have a higher percentage than normal. And the NBA, because it is a, just a smaller pool of players, especially since it's not every team going out there, is more prone to having slumps and stuff. So clusters of people that happen to get it more often. Like it was probably as likely that they came up with an absurdly low number, just happened that, that you know, some, some buddies in a small sample size maybe all got it together and that can happen too. So I wouldn't put too much social explanation above this other than just the means that, that people tested on and that sort of the, the pre-existing knowledge that both leagues had about their people. And that's probably it. When you look at the roster constructions, right? Like four random Braves getting it is less impactful to the total percentage than four NBA players getting it, right? Definitely. Absolutely. Um, It's very hard to replace NBA players (laughs) on a one-to-one basis. uh, They vary greatly in the the level of uh, value that they bring to the franchise. um, But like, uh, I, I guess I'm still obviously concerned about this, but... This is also not unexpected. I mean, it's a little low, but it, there's a lot of noise there. And if they're going to play baseball, this is what they got to deal with. And like this rate of infection. And now the tricky part here will be t- 
to when we get to see the rate of actual um, impact that the disease has on people. People like to say it doesn't hurt healthy people, but that's just not true. Healthy people are more likely to get through it without symptoms, but we don't know long-term effects, and it's not zero. It's it's absolutely not zero. Like healthy people do end up in the hospital. Healthy people do end up experiencing significant hardship based on getting the disease. And at some point, somebody is going to get hurt really badly. And it's just a matter of time. And see how they react to that will be the real test of this. Right. And with the Freddie Freeman situation specifically, you guys mentioned he tested negative on the intake test and then a couple of days later got sick. So we don't know, kind of like what you were saying, whether it was a false negative the first time or maybe he got that exposure when he showed up to camp and mingled with somebody else who just arrived out of town because his wife was saying they spent the last three or four months pretty much totally locked down. They didn't even go to the grocery store. And the second he shows up to camp, he gets hit sick and gets hit with like a ton of bricks. They say he's pretty miserable right now. So even a 30-year-old top-of-the-line world athlete is pretty much laid up in bed all day now because of this thing. It's going to be something to, to monitor going forward for sure. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many things we still don't really know about this. And one of the ones that I was just talking to my wife about this when we were out walking the other night was that there's emerging research that shows that the the rate of infectiousness uh, varies wildly from individual to individual. One person can have a really bad case of the disease, and yet the the microbes or whatever that they're giving off are not nearly as infectious as somebody who is not dealing with a significant case of it and they are just you know basically a walking germ factory where they're just pumping out amazing amounts of the stuff all the time and are highly infectious to anybody that that comes into contact which makes the whole thing you know even more random that you can be around a bunch of people that have it and not get sick or you could be around one person who and and get sick and a bunch of people get sick just because it, ha- it so happens that this person was very infectious so it's there's so much that we still don't know, and we will see Yeah, as, as we progress here what's going to happen over the coming weeks. I was heartened to see that – I can't remember exactly which team it was. It was on the MLB special. They were talking about uh, that teams are using their facilities because baseball stadiums are big places, right? At least some teams are using their luxury suites as like individual locker rooms for players so that players can go and change and have a place in the stadium to hang out where they're not by a bunch of other people, which is fantastic. That's It's those kind of things that are absolutely going to be vital to keeping this going because the interaction on the field, players on the field, that's much less concerning because it almost entirely takes place outside. Baseball is a game where there's not a lot of physical contact between people, and other than you know the catcher-umpire batter trio there most of the time people aren't really that near each other so you can get away with a decent amount I think from that perspective but it's the players when they are specifically I think the biggest issue is going to be traveling when they're in planes together when they're in buses together where it's really unavoidable because you can't have like you know 25 separate flights or whatever those are going to be the, the times when one sick person can really infect a bunch of other people. But if they limit the exposure the rest of the time, you know, if they if they try to keep players as separate as possible, don't let them hang out, especially in recycled, con, you know, air conditioned air together for long periods of time. 
that should keep transmission from player to player relatively low. But the, the question is always going to be what happens when the players go home and when they they're forced to travel together. So we'll just have to see. It's it's all way more questions than answers at this point. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like from the Brewers perspective, they're really hammering home the outside is better thing. I think on the first day of camp, they, you know, the reporters were saying Craig Council really hammered that point home. If you got to do something, have a meeting or something, do it outside on the field. Don't do it back in a locker room or closed off space. So they're really trying to hammer home the, the distancing and the staying outside aspect of this, which, you know, using Miller Park is, is always going to be probably preferable. So one of the other things going forward, I think that we're going to have to make sense of or get used to is kind of how teams handle these announcements of the players getting COVID because the way the agreement works is teams can't just outright come out and say player B has COVID. He's going to be out for two weeks on the injured list. They actually have to get player permission to announce that. Otherwise, you have situations which we saw kind of earlier this week where, what, four or five Phillies show up on the injured list on the first day of camp with no real explanation. And then kind of the, we're a speculation society, right? So our brains just automatically go, okay, well, Hector Nares has COVID. And it turns out he did. But <laughs> it, it's just, this is going to be a weird thing where how do we navigate this kind of environment where we hate to kind of jump to the conclusion because there is still sadly a stigma associated with getting sick with COVID. But I mean, at the same time, it's going to be hard to not notice certain players popping up on the injured list, right? Yeah. It's impossible to do this without getting rid of other labeling of specific injuries. Like if you're going to report on people's normal baseball injuries, there's no way to hide this because it sticks out like a sore thumb. So that, that's not going to go away. They're not going to stop that. And and so any any ruse they come up with is going to be obvious. And it's just there's no way around it. So it seems like a good a good candidate for flu like symptoms to me, since it, uh, it it obviously means like kind of that, but also has been historically um, meant to be drunk or something else that can't be disclosed. <laughs> and so I, I, like I, that's what I'd go with as like a not great solution to this. But I mean, we're all going to know instantly when anybody has it because they'll show up on the injury report as a, you know, non-disclosed of some kind. And that's as good as saying that they have it just is, is how it is. You know, it's already been really weird with the speculation on the, like James was talking about Hector Neris and the Phillies and, and that whole situation. Now, a lot of players have given permission and that seems to be I think that's becoming more common as more players do give permission and say, yes, this is what's going on, then I think the stigma on it will drop and maybe more yeah. players will just sort of go along with that and say, yeah, I, I just rather than have people sit there and speculate and talk about it wildly, because if you if you do that, if you don't give permission, if a player doesn't give permission, it, it almost seems like you're trying to hide something. And so then that also seems bad. Like Paul said, as long as other injuries are being reported, this is going to be this is going to be a problem like you I do you just can't get around it I wonder if the league had an opinion on this at all um I mean it's obviously up to the players in terms of privacy but I wonder if they did opine as to how transparent they want to be with the percentage of players that do test positive and I do wonder if they kind of allied with people who did want to maintain their privacy at first just to try and keep that as 
confidential as possible. I'm sure the last thing they want is for some spike to pop up that's easily provable as like, you know, a quarter of the players getting it simultaneously. Don't don't know anything along those lines, but I mean, what's become very clear very quickly is especially, you know, people who are baseball stat people who are the best diggers in the world will instantly find out exactly how many people have it and have been tested positive for it. So, yeah, the best best course for everybody is probably just to lay it all out there that you have it and um, there's no way to hide it anyway. And Meg Rowley made a very good point on the Effectively Wild podcast about this, that from a media standpoint, looking at it as a reporter and as somebody who manages reporters in her case, it is very useful for the media to understand how prevalent COVID is among the players because they're going to have to be as honest and forthright about what the impacts of what's the season that is unfolding in front of us. What impact is this having on health? Like, what is this doing? Or, or, you know, like how many players are actually being affected by this? What is the rate of infection and all those things are valid points to be reported on from a public health perspective, from a player safety perspective, from a number of perspectives that don't involve, you know, assigning individual guilt to players. And yes, there are always going to be jackasses on Twitter who want to point the finger at somebody and, you know, say you were irresponsible or whatever for for getting this, even though they have no idea of the circumstances of how that came to be, whether they were irresponsible or not. But that's sort of a side issue to the overall public health angle of this, which is we need to know these things because if we don't know how many players are getting sick from this thing, it's impossible to assess whether or not this should even continue, right? Like you can't you can't make a reasoned argument about whether or not this is a, a overall a good thing that's being done without knowing those figures. You really can't. So it, it's so complicated. Yeah. And I think another thing to keep in mind here when it comes to, I guess, the transparency of who has COVID and who's not feeling well and all that is baseball players tend to have a tendency to not be totally forthright when somebody's <laughs> bothering them, right? Like <laughs> like Jeff Kent and his uh, motorcycle washing. I mean, yeah, but even just like day-to-day hamstring strains or whatever, right? Oh, oh like, yeah, yeah. Somebody could wake up and, and yeah. some of this is mitigated by the, the health protocols, which had to be super stringent probably for this reason. But, you know, if somebody wakes up not feeling well, how honest are they going to be about that? And granted, they have to get tested to get into the facility and everything like that now. But I think that's a big reason why Craig Council spent a big part of the first day kind of stressing that there's no stigma here. You guys could be perfectly in line and, and staying out of trouble and lock yourself down and still get this thing, right? So I think that's why the importance of being forthcoming with all of this and i you know it goes for all of us too not just the baseball players being forthcoming with how we're feeling and what we've done and that kind of thing is so important i hope it does though get pointed out to the players i'd be really interested to hear some of the conversations that are going on from teams and from the union towards players talking about this because like the nwsl situation the orlando pride that team had a team-wide outbreak. A bunch of players got infected, and they were actually forced to withdraw from their tournament that they're doing. And the reason that that happened was a player, it is known but not known who the player is, that they went out to a bar in Orlando, and that's how they probably contracted the virus. And it would be good 
if the players saw that as a cautionary example and a don't let this happen to you, don't be the person that does this because people are going to find out who it is. People are going to find out who did that. And even though we don't want players individually stigmatized, the idea that they might fear that as far as influencing their behaviors would be a positive. So it's it's all very complicated because at the same time that you don't want players to feel the stigma, you want them to fear the stigma, right? You you want them their actions to not be reckless. And if that means that they need to be afraid of being, you know, the one who who brought it to the team or whatever, great. That's that's perfectly reasonable. The best tool you have against them is their own already gigantic ego, right? Sure. Uh, you don't want that you don't want to chip the statue that they built up in their minds of themselves <laughs> however i think that's still the danger with it i think there's still a very large consideration with these younger in shape players who believe it won't happen to me i've already done this so how can it happen to me type of mindsets where it's like well i already went out to the bar when we were on break anyway i didn't get it who cares like they obviously did something stupid that i didn't do or something along those lines. I think the biggest thing is when you see your peers actually suffering, when you see someone like a Freddie Freeman actually made to be very human because of this, then you're like, oh crap, Freddie Freeman's like a top 1% talent of baseball. And now he's human? I think that's where it becomes more of a realistic type setting. And that's why I hope more players actually become more publicly exposed for when they end up being ill than actually just sitting on the back burner and like making it a mystery, non-mystery mystery on the IL, as we've talked about, it, because I think seeing your peers actually brought down to the level that everyone's suffering at is what makes it the most scary, more so than anything else. Well, in the public too, right? Like, what would the effect of Christian Yelich contracting the disease and having to miss a bunch of time, what would that kind of effect would that have on people's decision making in, you know, Milwaukee or in the the world at large? It probably would have some impact on on people thinking, hey, if if he can get this and be laid low by it, then, you know, I certainly can. Right. right. So there's there is a, a public health aspect to it, too, where reporting out the information does make sense. And of course, in our ideal world, just no one has it, <laughs> but it's it's the reality of how these blocks will likely tumble is, you know, once you see the strongest among you become weakened, you start to have ideas because I think a big part of the stigma right, with getting the illness right now or the thought behind the illness right now more so than stigma, stigma is it, it's an old person's disease. <laughs> right. And, it it obviously isn't like obviously that's the opportunity where it's most fatal but it's still very harmful on the other side of the coin yep. so well and that's why it's important yeah. that all the reporting being done right now is you know it's focusing on the fact that the spike is happening among people in their 20s that's where we're mm -hmm. seeing the growth of the disease the most is people in their 20s because they're going out to bars they're in social situations that are not safe and to you guys' point, I think it the virus becomes a lot more real when you know somebody who's had it and you can see the effects firsthand, right? And to a lot of people, 
baseball players, celebrities, whatever, they're almost like family and that you see what they're doing every day, kind of just as much as you would see your mom, dad, and uncle, right? So, you know, there that, and that is a good point that maybe there's some hope with Freddie Freeman or whoever else in those communities. They can come out and be like, this is no joke, guys. I thought I was good and I still got it and it's super serious. Take it seriously. So, I mean, there is a benefit there. The other thing that the players and the league has to be careful of is if they have too many large outbreaks on teams, if you do see enough of it firsthand, I could see situations where there's a temptation for a bunch of players to walk away at that point. There's already a bunch on the fence about playing anyway, and there is certainly a percentage of a team that could contract the disease that would push the rest to be like, no, I'm I'm out. I'm not dealing with this. Baseball's got to be careful of that. And that's like the ultimate disaster for them is that's the scenario where the league breaks down and they can't actually have a season anymore. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why they allowed 60-man pools instead of just the 40-man roster, right? <laughs> like, just to make sure that maybe there are enough players to to backfill in a scenario of a mass breakout or a mass walkout even, right? It's weird looking, too, at like teams like Atlanta, where if Freddie just got it, that means someone potentially unknown is out there or, you know, there's more players getting it in the same way that he got it. And eventually you're looking at an incredibly dominant offense becoming their triple A team. Right. It, and it greatly degrades the excitement of watching these exciting teams and takes away their localized fan base because, well, who wants to watch the <laughs> M Braves? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I like watching the M Braves when they play the Shuckers, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I mean, the Braves still have a better farm system than the Brewers, so they'll probably oh, be yeah. better off. But, like, <laughs> but that's gross. a good point, too. <laughs> exactly. Bit. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, depth is going to be a, a big concern here. As of now, the Brewers have 45 players announced on their 60 man pool. Still 15 spots, I guess, officially unannounced, although we know a decent handful of those from players who have been optioned down, like Tyrone Taylor. Uh, Corey Ray is probably going to be there, Angel Perdomo, and. Trey Shupak. Um, but yeah, the guys on the 40 man who weren't on the summer on the 45 roster. summer cast. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we, we can kind of infer that those guys will be in Appleton with the other crew. Brad, do we have any idea or any other feeling? I guess who would you call on to kind of backfill in, in this situation? Because, you know, you want to get your top guys some some playing time. Like we mentioned Feliciano a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. But at the same time, there's a huge outbreak you need to make sure these guys are at least serviceable right i think to an extent but i think they realize that if you're it's like having a third string quarterback right like if you dip into your third string quarterback you already know your season's done i think it's that type <laughs> sure. of situation where you're like well if there's an yeah, opportunity where bryce terang's playing we're boned anyway so what's what's the difference uh i don't think it's going to be like a massive influx of prospects on the back end of that 60 but you have heard of other teams having fair prospects who are pretty low in the minors, but pretty high in the organization value being brought to these 60 man rosters. And I, from what I've heard is like when we're looking at the low end terrain will be a part of it and is a likely part of it. So Ethan I think small too, is, right? Yeah. Ethan small is, but he's a guy where I think if you're bringing him in, you're moving someone from the bullpen to start and hoping that, an already advanced draft profile can survive in the bullpen in a way that doesn't destroy you. 
uh, and I think it ends up being more value than uh, WCW from back in the day and hiding him in the bullpen. <laughs> but it's one of those things where I think the value in actually developing people is still very important to the organization because if you end up taking a year off where you don't get development, then you're looking at being set back from your future even further while still losing playing time for these players. So when you're looking at an organization like the Brewers who dress for replacement in a way, uh, you are dealing with a situation where now these guys have gotten no development, but you are a year further from losing Luis Urias, Orlando Arcia, and those type of players. So I think there's still value, like the value being placed in that is substantially higher than the idea of, well, what if we actually do because of a massive outbreak had to play Turing? And I also think the idea is if it ever gets to the bad enough point where that is the case, the season's probably over anyway, right? Yeah, and then it's purely just like, well, we'll make the best of a terrible situation. Right. Yeah. Yep. The other thing that's fun is a little off topic compared to this, but have you seen that? teams are actually able to rent out their prospects to the indie leagues. So that's the other way they're continuing development is they're actually more or less leasing the players out uh, and the indie league signs them to a contract, pays them for the year and then gives them right back to the major league team. So this is being done with their consent though. This is players who want to play. It's not like being, yeah. Okay. Just to be clear about that. (laughs) Yes. 100%. So if a player wants to play the season still, but is likely not going to be on the 60 man roster, indie league teams can come to an agreement with their major league team to sign them for a period. And I think in instances where they want to continue development, the major league team might approach the player and be go along the lines of, Hey, Max Lazar, do you want to, play this season and if he does because we can definitely get you on this team you do go to the milwaukee malcomen yeah exactly so that's a fun way that we're still going to see some development this year although the Uh, indie league experiment scares me i think more than the major league especially after seeing a sellout at uh milwaukee on the first day see that's the thing about this It, it it's 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 one of those like um, oh, isn't it cute that a kid had a lemonade stand to pay for medical expenses kind of stories where, <laughs> well, actually, you shouldn't have to do that. You shouldn't exactly. have to do yeah. that. You should just have your minor league team running if you want to develop players still and pay for it. And instead of essentially using, you know, contract labor to develop your guys while you don't feel like taking the risk and the financial hit yourself. Yes, I know any team leagues will benefit from having higher profile players there. So they certainly benefit from this. But they're not going to have as stringent of rules of safety just because they can't. Their financial resources are limited. And the uh, b- baseball is making players sign waivers. Um, yep. If they do play an indie league ball, I was going to mention that. Yeah. That um, any injuries they sustain or anything that goes wrong is on them. And it will... literally mentions death in the it, waiver. It, it too. does. So, oh, man. See, just... as the person who's been caught off from the news cycle for like five days, did not know that, which <laughs> <laughs> makes it a whole lot less fun. Yes. Well, it is in the so, rundown, Brad. It is in the rundown. <laughs> uh, I haven't had the time to read the rundown because I was a sleepy boy. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's the thing, though. So these players can get the playing time, but they basically almost have to sign their life away in a way to do this. And, you know, I, I guess if you're just general minor league fodder, you're not a top prospect, maybe you... Maybe you take it just to be paid too, you know. I mean, the Brewers are still going to be paying their minor leaguers, but it's another paycheck to try to make ends meet too. There's going to be some pressure to do that. Yes, there will. 
Yeah. I think too, when you're looking at why the minor league season isn't happening, because it's incredibly hard to get 200 teams up and operating in a safe manner when they don't have the facility usage. And then they, you're still sending team or players out to teams who have the same problems. Exactly. It incredibly odd. <laughs> it's, it's problematic. Um, it, it, uh, it highlights the issue of baseball's minor league system generally in this crisis. And it does, all it does is foist the liability of it somewhere else. So not, not a fan of that. I, I hope nobody has to take anybody up on it. I know some guys, I mean, if you want to take that risk and play indie ball and you know, whatever, I guess fine. You know, if, if you go walk into it with eyes open and whatnot, and, but like, if there is a situation where baseball is trying to like loan guys out like that, yeah, that, that's skeezy to me. I don't care for that. Yeah. It's also, definitely fraught. Like there's lots that can be bad here. If players feel the pressure to go and do this, if they're, you know, feeling like, Oh, what well, my organization really wants me to do this. And if they feel coerced into it, yeah, you, that's you really can't have that. That's terrible. It, and I think that's in very, very possible. But it, thankfully, so far in my situation, in what I've experienced on the back end of it, is it's a lot of players seeking out the opportunity almost on their own regard, where they're having agents reach out to it, then work on with their major league team to come to the agreement, which makes me feel a little bit better about it. It's like a guy saying like, well, it, I still want to play. But again, there's all the questionable reasons. Like, are they doing this because they're only getting $400 a week and they can go and make a more reasonable salary playing indie ball because $400 a week is an insanely low amount to pay anybody <laughs> who's not a high school part-time student like, or part-time employee. Right. So yeah, it's hard because you do run into those questionable things. I think as a prospect nerd, I get a very excited about it because there is a lot of visibility now on the prospects again. So now I can sit and watch my favorite prospect boys play on teams. But like I said, when you're looking at the entire reason for not operating minor league baseball is because they don't have the facilities to provide a safe environment and they cannot have fans in the stands anyway to, because it is not safe and then you're sending them to indie ball where they do not have the facilities to handle this safely but they are having fans in the stands uh-huh. <laughs> right it also sets up a maybe interesting precedent in an era where major league baseball is looking to cut minor league teams maybe this is a way to kind of piece off the player development on indie league teams and they don't have to worry about it you know so i mean maybe that's just a s- cynic thought in my head right now but when has Major League Baseball ever taken advantage of a situation to cut costs? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely people who are going to be watching all of this, who are mm-hmm. who are bean counting and are looking at this and saying, oh, well, this worked better than we thought it would. And yep. yeah, so I think there's always going to be some sort of uh, need for baseball to have affiliated teams and developing. The question is, how much of that can they pare back? and keep that to bare bones and keep the rest of it external and externalize those costs while still getting the benefits. And of course, that's what they're trying to do. That's what this right. is, the, the cutting of 40 minor league teams was all about, was externalize the cost while retaining the vast majority of the benefit. Well, and part yeah. of the initial deal in the winter was pushing a lot of the cost to house the players off on the owners of the minor league teams. So you're already looking at them thinking in that way. 
on top of cutting down to save money on that, they were trying to push, I think, even salary expenses for the players on the owners. So now you're looking at an opportunity where, oh, they can get double A, triple A level of competition and someone else puts the bill. Yeah, and you could easily see a scenario developing with indie league teams or non-affiliated teams generally that sort of reflects how movie theaters have operated for a long time where you know studios make movies and have all the leverage because they can actually they collude a lot like baseball teams do but they get to decide what goes where and theaters basically make their money just on concessions a lot like minor league baseball teams if you're parceling out prospects to indie league teams it's very easy to make them dependent on you very quickly, even without a contractual relationship. And if you do that, you take a lot of the responsibility off of yourself to provide financial support um, or anything of the like, if it, if it works. I mean, you obviously do want control over certain development processes, but we've seen with like the development of driveline style pitching labs and, and hitting labs that a lot of that doesn't necessarily have to take place on the field. The field's valuable for seeing live action but in terms of skill development, it might not be as important as it once was. And that lends itself to this kind of thing happening. So, and your um, staff isn't as integral to the development of players as they used to be because there's so many outside sources for players to get that instruction and to, to develop. Also, something that they, they don't have yep. to worry about as much as they would have, say, 10, 15 years ago. Right. Absolutely. Well, on the topic of uh, pandemic lines of thinking maybe becoming the way of the future, Looks like the you know the DH is going to be here this year, more than likely going to be here next year as well. And that has Ryan Braun again talking about, well, maybe this won't be his last year. You know, back back in whether it was Brewers on deck or in the spring, he was kind of openly talking about maybe retiring at the end of this year. You know, he's got a new baby son, so he's got three kids, at, young kids at home now. He's thirty seven. He was kind of looking ahead to you know maybe life after baseball, but after taking about half the year off, suddenly feeling good. It's yeah. funny how not playing it does well for a 37-year-old guy. And now there's this extra position that might kind of extend his career. So he's kind of talking about this again. So I guess, Paul, do you see him kind of continuing on, uh, whether or not that's with the Brewers here? So so quick poll for everybody. And I'm going to do something that I hate, hate it when other people do it, um, which is read players' body language. But we, we've all we've all watched Ryan Braun play for many, 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 many years at this point. Do you guys think Ryan Braun enjoys playing defense at all? I think hey. he did at a time. I don't think he does in like How the last, last three like, years. <laughs> I, I'd go farther than that, but probably since like the injuries got like started really mounting up slightly after the quote unquote scandal, like around 2013, 2014 is when it was like, oh, he doesn't even want to be out there. <laughs> He looks he always looks like he's not trying very hard out there, except in certain specific instances. Yeah, um, his, and it always he, takes a little longer for him to get up from those dives. Right. It does. So, exactly. It, the way he throws like let's all keep in mind. Ryan, Bla Ryan Braun played third base, could not throw accurately, but had a third baseman's arm. Well, like what happened to Ryan Braun's arm when he moved to the outfield? It's OK. But it should be far better than it is or has been for years. Hey, uh, it was good the first few years. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then it just kind of died. And I, if you want to push it back a little bit further, I don't know that you could be that bad at third base, at the throwing to first base part of it, if you really, if you really wanted to improve at it. it it's, it's not that hard <laughs> if you got the strength <laughs> for it. 
So anyway, uh, um, I think it, I think it'll help him stick around because I think he just likes hitting. I don't think he likes playing defense, and I don't think he has for a really long time. So I, th- I think this plays right into what he wants to do, and uh, I definitely think he was a guy who was primed to go to the AL like on a cup of coffee deal after he was, you know, done done just to just to hit more. And if he can do that here and still be with fans who actually kind of like him, so much the better. This will definitely keep him around longer. Yeah, I do think we talked about this before because this mm-hmm. this has a Groundhog Day feel to it, doesn't it? That we keep this keeps he's, kind of resurfacing. Yeah, he's, he's mentioned this at least two or three other times yeah. during the shutdown, right? So yeah, yeah. For Braun too, it's one of those things where we know this is going to prolong his health. Obviously, he's had the historical nagging back injuries. We've talked about it time and time again, how ideally this is what he does because you can get the most out of him. He doesn't need to be 120 game Braun playing in the outfield or not trying, as Paul says, (laughs) except for when it makes him look good. That's when he seems to want to shine, right? is when he he gets the shine. But when he can just go pick up the bat, go take a couple swings, obviously his favorite part of the game. I don't think anyone who's watched Braun over the last since 2008 would argue that hitting is obviously what he wants to do and what he enjoys doing. And it's very much likely less likely that he's going to deal with those nagging oblique injuries that we have to see take him out for every 14 days. It seems very much his speed and it's not like you can't still get value and play him out in the outfield or first base every now and then it's not like playing david ortiz even at 31 at first base in a playoff or in a world series game and just watching him fumble around he can still do those things competently to an extent but you really get to protect him as a franchise and that does have significantly more value even from a team level than it did when we are talking about a DH list 2021. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see from a financial perspective what happens here because right. Braun has a $15 million mutual option for 2021, but there's a $4 million buyout on it. And it seems hard to believe the Brewers, especially with what we know is likely for next year with this year's shutdown and next year's season being up in the air it seems unlikely that the brewers would just pick up that 15 million dollar option i guess i guess unless you know what if ryan braun is the world series mvp like if you know then you could maybe (laughs) see something like that happen just so that there's not a negative backlash you just pay the freight on that like that's right like you could see something like that potentially happen but maybe but it seems pretty unlikely i mean we talked about this before right paul like it seems more likely that they would pick up the they would pay the four million dollar buyout and then offer him three or four million or something yes. and say hey that's right far more likely they're not going to eat 15 million to keep braun around yeah braun at eight back at eight million at dh is a reasonable expense i think braun at 15 million is stupid because there's a lot of better ways the franchise can use that money and i i like ryan braun uh, he still has value offensively but when you're looking at trying to squeeze in Ryan Braun into an outfield that's Avasail uh, Lorenzo Kane, who has was so so last year, we'll see how he does. And Christian Yelich, I would still rather have Kane out there because Kane at least fields well on every play. Right. And Braun exactly. is kind of a short side of a platoon bat and not much else at this point. So that's that is what the team is going to see him as and pay him as with maybe a teeny tiny premium for being able to move a few jerseys. That's it. Any talk of 15 million is crazy for that. Right. 
And David Stearns is the heartless Ivy League executive. He's not going <laughs> to care too much about the sentimental value of cutting Ryan Brown. Well, yeah, so- he's not going to come back on four or five million. Like they'll find somebody else to they'll find an Avi Garcia or a, somebody <laughs> else to pay $4 million. Right. Yeah. This isn't so, Robin Yount either. This is, you know, steroid boy who is kind of surly and it has very limited value at this point. So it's not like they'd be, you know, going out on some hall of fame where everybody loves and still going to be around the team forever. Does Ryan Braun have more value offensively than Eric Thames? I don't think he does just because mm-hmm. of the mix of left and right-handed pitchers in the league. And I mean, I, if it's hard to say for me, because last season, I think he, he actually handled both sides pretty well, but then you go back to three seasons like before that. And he wasn't that hitter period. He wasn't, and it didn't look that way. And he was the short side of the platoon. It was bad, but it all depends, I guess, on how this season goes. If he can handle both sides again, like he did last season. Okay. I mean, obviously he's still, shining against lefties and coming up short against righties, but it was much more tolerable last season than it had been the few years before. But also it's a gamble, right? If it's going to be year to year, is 8 million worth it to a David Stearns type? I think you almost rather pay the $4 million and cut bait. Well, hold on because it's not $8 million. It's the question is how much additional, because that $4 million is a sunk cost. The, yeah, the four million uh, yes. that they have to pay him is a sunk cost. So, well, I was working under the assumption that, and I think we could all agree that total David Stearns would not want to pay him more than ten million dollars, including the sunk cost. Right. So it's four plus four or four plus six or whatever you want to right do. Yeah. So, so to me, that's the mindset I'm working at. So they would count the four million sunk cost into whatever his contract would be worth. I mean, I guess they would look at it as no, because it's a sunk cost and they'll treat the sunk cost as the sunk cost that it is. So they're going to look at whatever they have to pay him above that, whether or not that's worth it or whether they could spend that elsewhere and get a better ROI. That's more or less what I'm saying is I don't think they would spend a total more than 10 million because I don't think they value more than six. Sure. That would. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But back to Paul's original point. So I think, okay. Thames is not as good against right-handed pitching, or sorry, left-handed pitching as Braun is against right-handed pitching, right? That is true. But there's also a lot fewer right-handed, or sorry, left-handed pitchers out there, so it doesn't come up as much, and it's not as meaningful. So I, I think it's going to depend, too, on what the rest of the market looks like. Like, how much Braun is worth on this year's, for for sorry for 2021 is going to depend on you know what what could they get besides braun like what's out there and how much right. is, does that cost that's going to determine all that i don't think braun's contract i think that's that's basically a done deal at this point they're going to pay the four million dollar buyout and oh yeah and then if they can get them back for less and i think that's part of the equation we're not considering ryan i think that's a good point to bring up is the market's going to be so screwy Right. Maybe bringing Brian Braun back is only a million dollar deal. Right. It. Yeah. It might really be. Or you get somebody better than Ryan Braun for five or six million, and you just move on. You know. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I don't think that's an impossible thing. I mean, you could. I think it's very possible that you're signing a Mookie Betts even to a pretty insane one year deal, uh, where it's like one year fifteen million when he should be out there getting a ten year thirty million dollar a year deal well, because the money's going to be so stupid. 
or just the fact that now the DH is a thing for National League clubs, if it is the case, well, then that opens up, you know, your Carlos Santana's, your Edwin Encarnacion's, your Nelson Cruz's, all these guys potentially could, if they're still hitting, you know, they have a good, they, they have a good run this year. Like all those guys come into the conversation too, because now you have the ability to play them without having to uh, put them in the field somewhere. So all of that comes into play at that point. I think that's the most interesting part of it that we haven't explored so far is just how crazy the market is going to be this year in in multiple ways. You're going to have a bunch of National League teams all of a sudden making a run at DH players if they don't have their... And I think only about five of the 15 do have qualified DH candidates. So you might have a run on players who can hit but aren't defensive premiums. But then on top of that, you are still dealing with a market that's pushing down on costs because now they have all this red line that they have to make up for in the off season. So it's going to be kind of insane and uh, more unpredictable than the already unpredictable last few years have been. Right. I think the expectation from agents and players right now is they're not expecting anybody to spend money this winter. So I think it was Ken Rosenthal or somebody else had mentioned that if a team actually does want to spend some money, they have a chance to build a super roster for one year. And if that doesn't sound like David Stearns, I don't know who it sounds like. So I don't know. Welcome to Milwaukee Mookie Betts and JT Rio Budo and they'll win the World <laughs> Series in 2021. Honestly, uh, and welcome back, Travis Shaw, left-handed side of the DH platoon. They could always get Thames back next year. I don't know, man. I just... Knowing what we know now, and we had this question a couple weeks ago, I just really, really miss Eric Thames and the idea of playing him at DH. That would solve a lot of problems right now. So It hurts. It certainly does. It, 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 when you look at how the season goes and how perfect he would be for a 60-game season with the DH, it's right. definitely one of those things where in They're playing the Reds so much. They're playing oh, the Reds so much. <laughs> he did really 20 insane. home runs in 60 games. <laughs> Exactly. He might, he might push Maris if they got enough at bats against him. <laughs> exactly. Well, on the topic of the schedule, I, I guess we're expecting the schedule to be out on Monday. So after a couple of weeks here of kind of wondering what exactly the playing scenario would look like, you know, all we knew is the number of games. We didn't really know much about logistics. We're going to learn more about that. And I know, Ryan, you and I were kind of like spitballing on this on Twitter a week or two ago, just kind of like, what is, how do you even structure a schedule like this where you're pretty much strictly only playing division games and in cross division games? Like, you know, I think you had brought up, do we see five game home, like five game series as the norm here just to minimize travel or. Yeah. So in thought? the, in the division, you know, you're playing the Cubs 10 times, the Cardinals 10 times. I think the, the thing that makes the most sense there is five game home and homes. It really because you don't want to have like two game series in the season. That's stupid. It's an extra plane flight. You know, it's an extra bus trip. It's you don't want that. Exactly. So I think five game home and homes. It's a little bit weird, but five game series are not unprecedented. I mean, throughout baseball history, we've seen those. It usually involves rainouts or whatever, but like. The Brewers got swept in five games at PNC Park a couple of years ago. So that was fun. They did. So like that makes perfect sense to me. me. And I think that that (laughs) (laughs) I think that's going to be the thing more interesting to me is how do you do the math of the five interdivision matchups where you're playing four games each against 
the other teams. And I'm assuming that that's what they want to do. But then you start getting into trouble of, okay, well, it's easy enough to say, okay, we're going to play a four-game series at home against the White Sox and a four-game series on the road against Cleveland. But then you're left with one leftover. But then you can't, if, you, if it's just a two-game home-and-home with, say, I don't know, the Kansas City Royals, um, well, okay, then we have a home-and-home home with them, and then maybe, you know, Cleve, there's another home-and-home home setup that leaves somebody out, so you, it doesn't work. Like, the math on it just doesn't work. So what I was wondering is, are we actually going to see, they haven't, I don't think, committed to the idea that it's going to be 30 home and 30 away. Are we going to see some teams playing 28 home and 32 away and some teams playing 32 away and 28 home? And they'll just say that that's fine for this year because there's not crowds anyway. So like home field advantage. We've seen home field advantage in soccer basically disappear. That it it really it doesn't have the effect that it used to without the crowds because the crowds seem to drive a big part of home field advantage, whether or not that's the way that it impresses on the players or the way it impresses on the officials like though that seems to have largely gone out of sports in sports that had good home field advantages. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how they decide to try to schedule that out. I think they will. And they'll just break up how fair some of those international or international interleague play are divided and instead do the travel for the aesthetic of having the equivalent home field. It just seems like something stupid baseball would cling on to in my mind where they they would really want to have that 30 and 30 quote unquote fairness, even though what does it matter? Because the, the really the only thing you have to do is no matter wherever you're playing, try to divide it up equally. So every team gets the fair option of batting on the bottom half of the inning, right? You can do that and yeah. still be in the same stadium. So I wonder if they end up doing it that way, where instead they say, okay, you only travel to this interleague team once, but for two of the games, you get to bat on the bottom side of the order. And then when this interleague team uh, travels, they get to bat at the bottom of the order twice. And that's how you kind of even it up. That's interesting. I wonder if they will do that. I I don't think, I think they'll figure out a way to do a true 30 home and home. And uh, I do think, that um, the way stadiums are constructed, it also matters more in baseball. I feel like for a long time, the Brewers have really struggled out West because they don't play as well in giant, huge stadiums. The homers kind of dry up a little bit. The contact hurts them. So I do think baseball has that, just the non-uniformity of parks as well. But that's, I do a lot of it is in just fair ups. And uh, <laughs> that would be a, a creative way to get around it is just to change the, the home and away order for a couple games. So maybe they'll do that. But there's such stick in the muds. I'm sure that they'll figure out a way to make it a true 30 30 i mean i I sat and tried to do the math on this and it really does get hard i you basically have to go two game series with every two game home and homes with every uh cross league rival and that means like an extra like three flights per team so when you when you do the math on it like i i don't know if they really want to do that like if they want to if they want to subject the teams to that much extra travel to do two game home and homes as opposed to to not i'm it's actually more than three flights it's like five or six flights depending on how the the schedule shakes out but it's a lot more so yeah that gets messy if we're like inventing this ourselves this idea of having i think that what it should be is for one of those series if you get the extra uh two home games then 
you play that entire series as the road team. So that it, it actually, so that, yeah, so that it actually, you're giving, by having the virtue of being able to be in your own home park and your own home stadium and that set up and not having to travel, you give up for that series the, uh, the home field advantage. Because then, yeah, so it's, it's not 30 and 30, it's still 28 and 32, but it flips that on its head. And I could see a team saying, Okay, we can we we like this. We'll go on the road and do this, but then we get to be like the home team that way. So I I could see that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think with the Brewers too, you know, they're gonna have the unique situation of playing both Chicago teams, right? So maybe they just kind of schedule it where like you spend a week in Chicago, get your Cubs and White Sox road series out out of the way in seven or eight days, whatever it is, and then you just kind of move on. I don't know. There's if- do you think for series like that, they're going to where it is literally a 90 minute drive? You just are like, drive yourself, guys. We're not put, putting you on a bus. You drive right. to the stadium. Just drive yourself. Make sure to bring your parking ticket. We'll reimburse you. And... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's interesting. What, what, they... When you when yeah. you park at the Hilton, tell them you're with the Brewers and we'll, <laughs> we'll cover all the parking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could see them doing something like that. Some players have not. I think there have been players who have, when they've traveled to Chicago, like I think Aramis Ramirez, when they did that, like he was allowed to not stay with the team. Right? Yeah, Yeah, he lived with his family. So yeah, because they they were still living. He was still living in the house that he lived in while he was a Cub. That was part of why he sided with the Brewers. Was he just didn't want to move his family? Well, I thought I saw like even the Packers do that sometimes, where they'll just take their team or their family down there, go have a day in Chicago, go shopping. I mean, obviously there's a little less opportunity to do the whole, this is our family trip. <laughs> yes. Nobody's but, going to the Navy pier right now. Right. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say nobody. <laughs> nobody should be going to the Navy pier right now. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Also, also in normal times, no one should be going to the Navy pier. <laughs> it's just where Chicagoans lock up the tourists. I think I heard there's a, is there a Ferris wheel at Navy Pier? I've never been. Yes, there's a Ferris wheel. It's the first Ferris wheel. Well, it's a reproduction of the first Ferris wheel that was invented at the the World's Fair that occurred um, in the South Side way back when. I, I go to Chicago like five or six times a year. And last year was my first trip to Wrigley and I have never been to Navy Pier. <laughs> You don't need to. Don't go. Don't do it. Like uh, you shouldn't. Not, at, at this time, I mean, I've been over it for a long time. Like, what can I be missing out on? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. At at best, you just show up and go, oh, there it is, and then you kind of like move on. And then, right. Right. Exactly. Um, so we'll see how the schedule plays out. In the meantime, the Brewers had a couple of guys who were fighting through injuries at the start of spring training proper, or would have been out for the first couple of months. Now that's less of an issue, right? So we, we kind of talked about Luis Urias and his wrist kind of healing up. Corey Knable also just on his on the mound. Uh, so he was, I guess, one of the first guys on the mound to throw a bullpen yesterday, yesterday as we record this, on Saturday. Uh, through 15 pitches, Chris Hook says he looks sharp. If it's not opening day, it's not soon after. So I guess... Uh, Ryan, how big of a boon is that for the Brewers to kind of maybe potentially have Corey Knable at the back of the bullpen as they start this 60-game stretch? I would love to have Corey Knable back in the back end of the bullpen and have Hader be more of what he was the year before, which was a guy you used in the highest leverage 
situations in the middle innings to bridge that gap and really make it much more about, you know, him going, you know, multiple innings most times out there and getting more rest days as opposed to having to be available for that ninth inning duty when it came up. I would much, much rather see that. But there's also the consideration of haters' feelings on the issue, uh, knowing that he's going to get paid. And the reason he got paid was because of the saves. And so, like, that is a real issue. Like, it doesn't matter so much for free agency anymore. It doesn't make as much of a difference there. But Josh Hader still has three years of arbitration left. And it is very much going to matter to him to have saves because that's how he's going to get paid. So that's going to be a tricky thing, uh, a, a delicate dance for Craig Council to do. And I'm sure he will feel it out and see what the, the feelings on the situation are. And if it will be a problem, uh, then they will probably have to avoid that, which is not optimal for team from a team perspective. But those are concessions you sometimes have to make. And you know, from a, a fairness standpoint, like Craig Council, he didn't Craig Council come out and say that Hater should have gotten more money. He was did. It, he was yeah. Yep. He was supportive of him making money. So I mean, Council's going to to have his guys back that way and make sure that things are are okay. So I, I have faith that that's going to work out. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, Craig Council's not going to manage around getting Josh Hader saves. Like that's doesn't seem to be his mo here and when you're working with a 60 game schedule you're working with two craig timbers i think he's just gonna probably just use the pitchers in the way that kind of makes them most successful right like at least you would hope so i mean probably yes it's it's such a small set also like are numbers even gonna matter that much for things like arbitration this season? Like that's a thing. I, yeah. Do they just throw them out? Everybody's like, how do you bring it up? Like, like <laughs> save leaders? What gonna have fifteen saves? Yeah. If Josh Hader ends up with the third most saves in MLB this year, that will be something his representatives will point out in the arbitration hearing, right? Like it'll be True. relative to season. It won't be the same benchmarks as maybe there were in the past 40 saves isn't a thing but like if he's third in saves then yeah so who knows how all of that's gonna work it's <laughs> that's that feels like a, a thing for way down the road but i do think it's something council's gonna have to he's gonna have to navigate it like because you don't want josh Hader pissed off about you know losing a bunch of money because nope. you decided to do something different they're going to trade him next winter anyway, so what does it matter? <laughs> there That's is... my thought press, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I With mean, can... I, I, I saw that kind of theory floating around, too. Did you just go or all this Chapman on the Cubs with Josh Hader this year? Just I think I said as much last, as you can. I think yeah. I said that last week where it's I think that's kind of how the Brewers sometimes instruct Craig to use guys is just like, well, we're not bringing them back. So go wild. <laughs> Who cares? Pitch Joachim Surya until his arm falls off, and it did. On the topic of kind of pitching, we do have some Patreon questions to get to this week. So Jay Google is asking, on the topic of pitching, what are your expectations for the starting rotation with the expanded rosters? Do you see them possibly piggybacking starters like they do in the minor leagues, Brad? I think that there was a season where that was likely. It's definitely this season. We've already seen a few managers come out and say, like, hey, we're going to watch these guys' pitch limits quite a bit. And when you're looking at a team who's already said uh, more than half our roster will likely be pitchers, I think you're looking at a favorable likelihood that that is the case, where you're at least looking at six starters, if not a 
semi piggybacked type of starters where you can do uh, like a Woodruff for four or, five, or four innings, depending on how his pitch count goes, and then a suitor for three innings and kind of manage that in the best way you can. I don't think it will be the long term, but I think the ideal for Craig is getting to a point where his bullpen can just handle those innings. And I think that's where it's different anyway, is the Brewers are already a group who gets starters out of the game more quickly than the rest of most baseball teams. So their bullpen is built to handle mass innings like this and come in and replace starters after four or five innings regardless. Uh, But I think at the beginning you could have more long relievers or people set up to handle those long stretches like a Brent Suter, like a God, what's the other Corbin Burns? Corbin Burns. Thank you. I could not remember Corbin Burns' name for the life of me. (laughs) Freddie Peralta maybe in that group, depending on whether or not he makes the opening rotation. Yeah, if he's not in the back end of the rotation, then for sure. I'm excited to see the new Freddie Peralta still. I know we got a little glimpse of him in spring, but with the uptick in velocity and him using his other pitches more frequently, I think he's probably, and the extension they just signed him to, I think they're going to maybe try to get him to be a starter. I think six inning or six starters is very realistic to start. And then you just have all those guys in the bullpen where you mix it in and you ease the load that way more so than piggyback starters. Yeah, this is the team of initial outgetters, and I think you'll see the distinction between long relief and starters break down more than um, any other time in the past. Like they have so many guys who are like qualified to be that between Woodruff, Hauser, Brett Anderson, who's really I think kind of has to be a starter because his stuff is garbage. Um, Lindblom, I wouldn't be surprised if they just even if they don't have official tag teams or you know, things like that, like play platoons more aggressively than they have before, where it, it might be pitcher X's turn, but the other team might be set up well to capitalize on him. So the other guy gets the start and he gets to be the, the, the back end reliever for that day. Like that might, that might actually happen this season. I could d- definitely see that there's so much depth to play that game. Um, and the brewers are well set up for it. So like, I think naming a starting rotation is almost pointless because I think it'll be just completely fluid outside of Woodruff being a lock and probably Anderson probably being a lock because of money and right. because of stuff. Um, <laughs> that's probably kind of it in terms of the ones you can count on to be in the rotation. Right. I mean, Hauser maybe just because of his success there and you reward him with the yeah. idea that now you are a starter and now you can earn that money. If we're talking in that, but otherwise, yeah, you have a bunch of guys. You have Yardley, Woodruff, Devin Williams, Suter, skipping guys who aren't in the current camp. Freddie Peralta, <laughs> Lynn Bloom, Eric Lauer, like over half the pitching staff that's listed on the 40 man are players who can go for more than a couple innings. And then that's not even getting into the non roster players like Drew Rasmussen, who can go three innings pretty mm-hmm. easily. Yeah, I mean, so. there's a lot of different options. I don't think we're going to see, like Paul was saying, I don't think we're going to see a formalized piggybacking, except maybe maybe they'll do it in one spot in the rotation or something. But I don't think sure. they'll they'll be like, okay, yes, this guy is going to start this game, and then he's always going to be followed by this guy. I don't see that. That would be too formalized and not in keeping with how they just generally do things. But I do right. think we're going to see, like Paul said, the breakdown more so than ever of the distinction between starters and middle relief. And we probably will see some interesting tactics used by them this year in terms of openers, like true openers where you have a guy come in for an inning to start a game and then 
flip it over. So, you know, a, a right-hander starts and then turns it over to Eric Lauer for the second inning, allowing him, you know, to not have to face the first, you know, four batters or whatever, three, four batters, and maybe get a, you know, a platoon advantage that way so that the next time he sees them, they're just seeing him for the first time. Some stuff like that would definitely make sense. And they're going to get, they're going to get creative. Every game will be managed like the 2018 NLCS, and it's going to drive some people mad. But I think that's kind of what we're going to see, right? Wait for new rules in 2021. Yep. I mean, exactly. they're they're going to have to just sort of live with it this year, right? Like, they're just going to have right. to acknowledge oh, yeah. that. I mean, they, I mean, it's not even it's just going to be gonna, the gonna Brewers. Be Every team is going to be doing this. So, yep. I mean, that's just the way baseball is going to look in 2020, and yeah. certain yep. folks I think are going to have to get over it. I think Brewers will be in like S tier in terms of creativity, but yeah, it's going to be much more spread throughout baseball. And we talked about that last week where Paul said, I think this is a kind of fearful situation because it might take away some of the creative advantage that the Brewers give themselves. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. But not over the pirates who apparently have an analytics guy that says bunting may go up with the DH. So, (laughs) okay. Bunt, bunt, bunt. bunt. (laughs) Go for it. Pittsburgh. You got this. You can make statistics say anything you want, right? Yeah. So go for it. Uh, we've got another Patreon question from Bill Robb. Uh, with the addition of the, I guess, secondary roster, secondary camp in Appleton, he's asking, are the Brewers making any facility upgrades at Appleton? I know, Ryan, we kind of talked about this before the pod. Do you want to go? Yeah, so not that we know of, but I think it's fair to assume that they are going to equip Appleton with a lot of the goodies that would be, say, normally in the pitching lab down in Arizona, I would imagine they're moving things like cameras and simulators and whatever all they have in that magic little room down in Arizona, that those things will be available in Appleton just because there isn't going to be a lot of players spread out all over the place like there normally would be. So they can they can concentrate some of those things. So I would assume those players are going to have you know, those things. The stadium itself is still relatively new. I I mean, it's not state of the art anymore. It's what now 15 years old, 60, somewhere in there, but it's still, it's still nice and reasonable. And they probably will have to do some sort of stuff with bringing in trailers. We talked about this a little bit last week for like players to dress and, and things like that so that they're not stacked on top of each other in a locker room the way you, you would be during normal times. But I, I think there will be they will they will be given a lot of advantages that wouldn't necessarily normally be there just because there aren't going to be other places for that equipment to be used anyway. Right? Yep. Yeah, I think it's it's a good point and something we'll kind of keep an eye on going forward too. Uh, we also have some Twitter questions to get to. We sent out a call for questions on our official Twitter account at MKE Tailgate. So look out for that tweet every week when we send out a call for questions. Uh, we've got one from Pastor Goober here, who's uh, got another roster question as we kind of get ready to look ahead to some games. He's asking uh, our best educated guess who plays the majority of the time at third base? I guess, Paul, do you have, I know you're not thrilled about any of the options, but who's <laughs> I, your best I, guess? I, I always have to be reminded. Um, I, my guess is Brock Holt, because I do think he's the best of the bunch there. But in a short season, this will this is like hot hand, central. It's We're playing a small sample size season. It'll be whoever gets hot. I think that's still most likely to be Holt, but I think they'll cycle through like eight first or eight third basemen by the time it's all said and done. So it's really a guess. 
I like him the best, though. I like. The, I'm glad they made that signing late. He's the only only one I really like of the the most recent group. So, I think you'll see. Eric Sogard. You think Sogard? Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. I think you'll see Sogard finish a lot of games over there for defensive purposes, and sure. I think you'll see Holt get. You know, if if Holt is hot, he'll get a lion's share of the at bats against uh, right-handed pitching. I think Jed Jerko is going to see the majority of the time against left-handed pitching. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So it, it just sort of depends how that all shakes out. But yeah, it's going to be hot hand time for sure. Yeah, and it's definitely one of those seasons where, where I think you're looking at two players playing third base almost every game. Right, exactly. Yeah, especially with the the additional roster spots, too. You can kind of afford that flexibility, right? Yeah, right. So, so like you guys are saying, whether it's Jed Jerko starts it and Eric Sogard finishes it or Brock Holt starts at third and moves second base or wherever, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of shifting around for sure. Mm-hmm. So reminder, you can send us a question every week on our Milwaukee's tailgate Twitter account. That's at MKE tailgate. You can also follow all of us on Twitter. Ask us questions directly. Ryan is at RD top. Paul is at Badger Noonan. Brad is at brew crew blue. And I'm at James L that's James with a Y. And again, a reminder, you can help support the podcast by becoming a patron and ask questions that way. You can go to patreon.com slash MKE tailgate and you'll get priority when we send out those call for questions and you get a shout out when you sign up, just like our new patron this week. Right, Ryan? Yes, and that would be a guy who already got his first question in, and that's, are we going with Rabe? Rob? I would say Rob. Rob, R-A-A-B. I don't know. Bill, you can correct us on the pronunciation if you want to, but thank you for for signing up. I've I've seen that pronounced Robbie also as a a way. That was was (laughs) my thought, was Bill Robbie. Yeah, R-A-A-B-E. Sorry, Bill, but thank you. No worries. We appreciate it. <laughs> you get the shout out when you sign up to become a patron. There are no guarantees we get your name pronounced correctly. Indeed. We'll add that disclaimer on 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 the sign up. You'll sheet, probably but... hear it pronounced um, several different ways while we talk through it. So. <laughs> exactly. Especially Just ask with our... <laughs> Especially though in Wisconsin, <laughs> we exactly. It, it's a very provincial pronunciation, maybe, uh-huh. you know, we'll, we'll see. So we, we have the new patron this week and a reminder that there is a level of our page, Patreon membership, Ryan, where you get automatic entry into our fantasy league. And we do have some announcements regarding to that, too, as well. Right. Yes. So we are going to be drafting on Sunday, July 19th at 4 p.m. Central. My wife has consented to allow me to draft on our 12th anniversary. So that's, that's all good to go. So it was like, well, we could do our, our uh, dinner afterwards. So, yeah, it's fine. It's only the 12th, not the 10th or 15th. So it's fine. Yeah, it's not it's not one of the big numbers. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to be doing that on Yahoo. And we do ask if you would like to be part of this, uh, that you can make sure that you are able to be there. I mean, I understand things do come up last minute stuff happens but please don't sign up if you know that you can't be there if you know there's like some major conflict because we would like to have everybody there for the draft because it just makes it better and we will also be honoring i I put up an rsvp on the website on on patreon we will be honoring anybody who rsvp'd i think there were six people and three of them have already re-signed up but the other three if you would like to re-sign up, we will honor that as well. You have first right of first refusal from the people back in March who said that they, they wanted to do it. But we're going to cap it at 16, and 
see if we can fill up a, a, a league that way. And it will definitely be Roto because doing head to head like we did last year in this crazy season would just be even more nuts. So, <laughs> right. Right. I think I saw Yahoo enable where you can do two matchups a week now if you will still want to do head to head. Oh, you can. Yeah. Th- there are some where you set it up so that you play everybody in your league every week, which essentially does work out to be like a Roto format. But we'll just, right. we're just going to do Roto because. It's definitely simpler and more sensical. Yep. And when the season gets canceled in August, we'll just declare a winner from that point, right? Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, we're, that's the, <laughs> that's the easy part. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, the Fantasy League's not the only thing we're going to have to do over because of this. Uh, we're actually going to do our prop bets all over again, too. So, Ryan, you want to talk about that? Sure. Kyle Ashour has graciously offered to redo the prop bets for uh, next week. So we will be doing that next week's show. So we have just a couple weeks here before the, the season starts. So next week will be prop bets. The week after that, we'll do our season preview. And then we're going to have games at that point to talk about by the, the next show. So hopefully fingers uh, crossed, fingers yeah, crossed, exactly. yeah, knock on, knock on this composite wood here. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we will be doing that next Sunday and uh, looking forward to it. And, and big thanks to Kyle for agreeing to do that and put in that extra work for a second time. Hope exactly. it goes better than last time. Not that Kyle did anything wrong last time. It's just an entire season didn't happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I still have those sheets that you guys left at my house, by the way. Oh, boy. Yeah. The, the, the less that's said about those predictions is probably better. But maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll have to be over under 0.5 seasons played as the, the first question. <laughs> the one I constantly think about is Ryan pointed out. He's like, oh, I don't think there will be a lot of attendance this year. So I'm guessing less ah, than damn. 2 million. He won that one. <laughs> yep. And yeah. I definitely was like, no, I'm going to go hard opposite. I think people won't care. I wasn't completely half. wrong, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Yikes. Now that is, wow. that is a valid point, but yeah, I mean, that was, we recorded that the Sunday before, uh, the Wednesday, that following Wednesday, was the NBA shutdown. Yeah, and the world changed after that. And yeah, I'm not saying it's Kyle's fault, but you know, <laughs> that was my last time inside a restaurant and last beer at a restaurant. Ah, <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah, see, I I know Steve likes to point out that this group has not been around for actual games being played, and we've somehow jinxed that. So hopefully, we we break that. Did they jinx it by leaving? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it it's off my hands. Steve's fault. Yeah. It's, it's Steve's fault. We'll blame that. This and thing I helped create it is no longer worth my time. I got to go do other things. It's his <laughs> fault. <laughs> he set that mood into the universe. Do we know how many cardboard cutouts of Ryan are going to be at Miller Park this year, by the way? Uh, or... Apparently zero. It filled up very oh, quickly. Is what I, it, it filled it sold up quickly. Instantly. Yeah, uh, it was hard to get in. Yeah. yeah, that's a bummer. Well, anyway, lots of lots of fun stuff to talk about in the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cats, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please do subscribe. And while you're there, please leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. In the meantime, thanks all for listening this week. Uh, We will be back next week with our Prop Bets episode, so stay tuned for that. Stay well, and we will see you then on Milwaukee's Tailgate.
the the fact that he is damn it hold on i lost my train of thought um how dare you what was i gonna say i'm i had something um keeps teasing it um (laughs) hold on oh my god what my brain just like went to a complete blank and now it's um, do you need to get outside and roll around a bit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I, uh, the, man, I'm gonna. Uh, it wasn't great, but it was something. I. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to remember story. it like a half. I'm going to remember it a half hour from now and go, God damn it. Is that the episode title? It wasn't great, but it was something. 